Good afternoon, everyone. I'll tell you, I'm excited to preach this message today. Uh, it's a message that, uh, one of those messages that has been on my heart and mind for many years. And I feel like this is the time to preach it. I've been trying to do my best to uh, prepare the sermon to present the different millennial views in an objective way. And so I hope I, hope I do that for you as, as best as possible. But I'm excited to preach this message today. I'm excited. I'm excited. So let me begin by, so I have been preaching, I started a sermon series last week on the end times. Everybody say eschatology. eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. And last week, I went over a historical survey of all of the different millennial views that the church has held to through its history. Last week, I heard from many of you, including our more mature leaders, that you felt a little bit lost. That you didn't recognize all the names. And I found out through my, our Facebook page, when I saw all the comments that went up on the sermon, that virtually none of y'all know how to spell the millennium. Or millennialism. And so I decided to make a chart for you. And I posted it on my Facebook page. I'm going to throw up the chart right now on the PowerPoint. Okay. You might not be able to really see it here. All right. And so. So look. If you want to download this chart. Look. It's, I made it personally. All right. So it, it gives you uh, historic millennialism. Premillennialism on the left. Then there's something called classical dispensation premillennialism. We will cover that next week. And then on the right, you have post-millennialism and amillennialism, okay? Amillennialism, okay? And then there's going to be a summary of each of the beliefs, the general outlook, outlook, like pessimistic, optimistic, and then there are modern proponents, and then certain people in history, the church history, that have kind of supported these their various views. So if you want your own copy of it, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com. Slash I Christian Lee. All right. And that's my Facebook page. You don't have to like me. All right. You can just download the chart and then be on your way. Okay. But that's where it is located. Okay. Um, yeah. I hope it helps out. And please learn how to spell millennialism. Okay. It's very important. Man, y'all have very creative spellings. I would have never even thought of. All right, and so make sure you, you get those spellings. Uh, so the study of the end times I went over last week is very important. Why? Because it affects our hope as God's people, especially in times of war, persecution, oppression, hardship. Our view of the end times is going to affect the Christian hope. Second, it affects how we engage the world that we live in. Are we going to go through the trouble of trying to reform education systems in Cambodia, in Korea? Your view of the end times is going to greatly affect how you engage that or if you engage it at all. Third, it also affects how we ready ourselves for the return of Christ. The current Christian culture in many churches 
they completely disregard end time views. It's the last thing on their mind. You can tell because they don't think that Jesus is returning. They're not living like Jesus is going to return any moment now. They're living like, oh, Jesus will return sometime later when the Great Commission gets fulfilled. When we evangelize to all the different people's groups of the world. Uh, I can worry about getting ready for Jesus then. And so a lot of cultural Christianity in many churches. People are living all kinds of double lives. People are living all kinds of sin, immorality. Not feeling any urgency to try to live holy. No urgency to try to live faithful. Why? Because their end time views are not on their peripheral. So it affects how we prepare ourselves for Christ's return. So very important. It's a very important topic. And so last week I went over the historical survey. You can check that out. And today we're going to be looking at an exegetical analysis of all the different millennial views. You're going to need your Bible. And for all of the church leaders, you should have brought your notebooks. If you didn't, go grab your chubo, whatever, wherever you can find white space, and you better start jotting down notes. Because one, you better learn how to spell premillennialism, <laughs> postmillennialism, amillennialism. And second, you should be able to articulate. After today, I'm going to present it with such clarity, by the grace of God, with such clarity, you should be able to articulate it to somebody else. Now, last week, I articulated it during the historical survey. Many of you did not remember what those views were. But I asked Pastor Aaron, a pastor who has no seminary degree or education, and she was able to clearly articulate each of the viewpoints that I went over last week. That tells me if she can do it, you can do it. (laughs) Look, I know she's a pastor, but she has no seminary training just like you do. All right, and she can do it, you can do it. And if you're in seminary, where's Emily? Pastors Emily and David and all of our graduated pastors, please, you should be able to articulate it very clearly. It's very simple, and we're going to go over that today. Now, it is important, I went over last week, that we acknowledge. That the interpretation of the end times is very complex. It involves very uh, many variable factors. And it is surrounded by a shroud of mystery. So the degree of certainty that we attach to our interpretations will be less than many other doctrines. This does not mean we just throw up our hands and not even try to come to a conclusion. All right, It's very important that the church examine the scriptures... And we make these attempts to reach our convictions on the end times, especially our views of the millennium. But at the same time, after we come to those conclusions, we got to be willing to extend grace to those who hold to different views or to those who don't know how to spell the millennium. (laughs) We got to extend grace because this is a hotly debated topic in the body of Christ. All right. So let's start. We're going to go over the three main views. The first three main views is one is amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. And we're going to start with amillennialism. Let's go to amillennialism. Okay, that's how you spell it. All right. Keep your eyes on me. You know, just look at that once and then keep your eyes on me. All right. It's just there for you to spell it. Please spell it. 
Now, according to our millennialism, the book of Revelation is seen in the genre of apocalyptic literature, Jewish apocalyptic literature, rather than future Christian prophecy. Thus, many prophecies and images in Revelation are considered to be highly symbolic. The millennium prophesied about is not a future period, but it's figurative for the current church age. This is what our millennialists believe. Satan is bound. Okay, let's look at Revelation 20. I'm sorry, we got to look at Revelation 20 again. Because this is the main text in which the teaching on the millennium comes out of. Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1. We're going to read it from 1 through 10 this time. You do not need to be a Bible scholar to get this message. You don't even have to be a Christian. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you should especially pay attention. Because I'm telling you, today I'm going to argue at the end for the viewpoint that I hold to. And if the things I'm saying is true, if you do not turn to Christ, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And, you will, and I will show you clearly what is to come according to Scripture. All right, check this out. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I'm going to read on the ESV. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. What is that? Well, it tells you that ancient serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Keep reading with me. Verse 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. This is the main text out of which the different views are coming out of. Revelation chapter 20. Now, our millennialism teaches that The binding of Satan that's talked about here in Revelation 20 
is talking about Satan's influence on the world being greatly reduced so that the gospel, gospel can spread throughout the entire world. Those who are described here as reigning with Christ for a thousand years, they are believers who have died and they are currently reigning with Christ in heaven. Since millennialists believe that Revelation chapter 20 is now being fulfilled in the church age, they believe that the millennium is currently happening right now. We are in the millennium now. The exact duration of the church age cannot be known because a thousand years is simply figured of, is figure of speech for a very long time. And church age already has exceeded a thousand years, right? We're at 2013 in the year of the Lord, A.D., A.D. 2013, right? I heard that these days they got rid of A.D., trying to be all politically correct, and they use um, C.E., common error. When A.D. In, the, in Latin, it means the year of the Lord, the year of our Lord. They're trying to get rid of that, and they try to change B.C., which means before Christ. Oh, well, to us, it means before Christ. Before, right, right, right. But, I mean, we think of it as before Christ, but BCE now is being interpreted as before common error. So they've generalized the fact that Jesus split history in two. Trying to get rid of Jesus. They're going to have something coming. Those people who made that decision, they're going to have something coming later. (laughs) Jesus is going to have a little personal word with them. So here are some arguments in favor of amillennialism. Number one, amillennialists say there is only one passage in the Bible that teaches a future earthly millennial rule of Christ. Thus, it is not wise to base such a major doctrine on one passage of an obscure and controversial interpretation. That's one argument. Another argument. Two, scripture teaches only one resurrections, not two. So, Premillennialists believe that uh, here Revelation 20 is talking about the first resurrection is one, a resurrection of believers who are going to co-reign with Christ during the millennium. And then the second uh, resurrection is the resurrection of unbelievers when, they're, when they face the final judgment. But in John chapter 5 verses 28 to 29, Jesus says, The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here Jesus talks about a single hour. The Greek word is aura. That could be interpreted as time, day, instant. It's talking about a kind of a, an hour, an instant moment in time. And so they interpret John chapter 5 as meaning that there's only one resurrection. So you can't believe in two resurrections. Another argument is, The idea of glorified believers and sinners living on earth together for a thousand years is too difficult to accept. So if you think about it, the image is a little bizarre. The teaching, the the natural reading of Revelation 20 tells you that saints who are resurrected in glorified bodies, they are going to interact with unregenerate, unbelieving sinners physical sinners who are living on the earth, they're going to interact while at the same time they're subject to death and decay while they are not. All right? The image is a little bizarre, isn't it? 
You know, the first resurrection, all these believers, they're raised up. They get these resurrected bodies just like Jesus. You know, you guys believe in the resurrection, right? Now, Christians, we believe that Jesus resurrected not in a spiritual form, like Casper the ghost, like, boo, I'm alive. And, and the disciples were like, let us touch you. And Jesus was like, you can't because I'm a spirit. I'm just a ghost. Now, Jesus said, touch me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look what they did to me. Look at look what they, they messed up my feet. And then Jesus said, give me something to eat. He had a physical body. It was a physical resurrection. And the hope that we have as Christians is we're going to share in that resurrection. And so premillennialism teaches that we're going to have resurrected bodies. And then we're going to descend on the earth. And we're going to reign with Christ on the earth. It's a little bizarre. Because the whole earth is going to have how many billions of people by then, right? Uh, I mean, I guess after uh, the tribulation, however many people survived the tribulation. We don't, I'll talk about the tribulation next week. I'm intentionally not going to touch it today. It's, it's a topic of its own. But however many people are going to be on the earth, and all those who are non-believers, all, Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to return. And then all these glorified believers, they're going to be coming back on the earth. You know, they're going to be riding on these clouds. Yeah, yeah, we're going to come down. And then they, they, they touch down. And it's not the end. You have a thousand years of them reigning on the earth with all these people who don't believe in Christ still. That's a little bizarre, don't you think? Okay, and so a lot of people, a lot of smart people, they're like, man, that is too bizarre. I can't believe that. A fourth argument Amillennialists make is that if Christ comes in glory to reign on the earth, then how could people still persist in sin? If people physically see Jesus reigning on the earth, wherever it is, let's say most people think it's Jerusalem. Koreans will probably think it's going to be Seoul. I don't know. Wherever it is. Maybe it'll be Hawaii. I don't know. Jesus likes the tropics. Wherever it is, he's physically going to be reigning on the earth. He's going to be on TV. He's going to be on podcast. Wherever you go, you're going to see pictures of Jesus. There's going to be news media companies still going on. If Jesus is physically on the earth, how can people persist in their unbelief? Right? And so people are like, man, that don't sound right. That just seems impossible. If people, if people saw Jesus, they would all bow to him. And so they just find it too hard to believe in a literal millennium. And it also seems unlikely that they will rebel against Jesus. You know, at the end when Satan gets loosed out of the pit, Satan's going to go out and gather an army. Where's he going to get this army from? Like the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of people. Hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of people they are going to gather. What kind of knuckleheads are they? They just saw Jesus reigning for a thousand years. They physically saw him in the news, whatever. They met him, perhaps, shook a hand. You know, Jesus, you know, going through, you know, Russia, going through Kazakhstan. He's just shaking people's hands. You saw him, and you still rebel against him. So people just, I'm millennialists, like, that don't, that don't sound right. Uh, I'm millennialists argue that the binding of Satan in verses 1 through 2 here in Revelation 20 is in reference to Jesus' words about casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And binding the strong man. That appears in Matthew chapter 12 verse 20 and 29. They also believe that this binding of Satan is talking about where Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning in, in Luke chapter 10. The binding of Satan was for a specific purpose. Quote, 
to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So, Amillennius argued that when Jesus came into the world, resurrected, died, and ascended, the Spirit of God was poured out. And at that time, Satan was bound, and his ability to deceive the nations was taken away or hindered. And thus, what we see right now is the gospel going out into the all, all the earth. The gospel is only able to go out to the, all the earth because Satan's ability to deceive the nations has been hindered because he's bound now. All right. In Revelation chapter 20, there's uh, also a strange scene. It's like uh, that movie Sixth Sense. All right. The author of Revelation here, he, he sees dead people. And Amillennius argue that the souls of the dead that the author here, he sees, they're not physical bodies. The Amillennius argues that this scene is occurring in heaven. When the text says they came to life, that Greek word for coming to life is not talking about a bodily resurrection, but they, that they simply, they came to life, they lived, they, were, they became conscious and aware again. Other amillennialists interpret they came to life in the sense of coming into the presence of Christ in heaven and beginning their reign with Christ from heaven. So that's what they believe this text is saying. That when they came to life, it means they came before Christ's presence and began their reign with Christ from heaven. Right? It's good. And so according to this view, the first resurrection is not a bodily resurrection. It just simply refers to believers going to be with Jesus in heaven. So in summary, our millennialists argue that scripture teaches that all the major events of the end times will happen simultaneously in the future. Christ will return. There will be one resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. The final judgment will take place. The new heaven and the earth will come and then we will all believers will enter immediately into the eternal state with no future millennial period. That's what amillennialists believe and argue. All right. Is everybody clear on what amillennialism is? Now, to be fair to amillennialists, amillennial, the, the term amillennialism is a bit of a mis, misnomer. Is that how you say that word? These smart SAT words that I never learned. Misnom, mis, misnomer, right? So they're not denying the millennium. They're just interpreting that period to be the current church age. Okay, so they don't like to be labeled our millennialists, some, some of them, because they do believe in the millennium. They just think it's now. Let's go to post-millennial view. The prefix post means after. Where our millennialists believe that there is no future millennium, post-millennialists believe that there is a future millennium, and that Christ will return at the end of the millennium. Therefore, it's called post-millennialism. That's the spelling for it, right? All right, check it out. Two L's, two N's. That's all you have to remember. There's no R in there, y'all. Is it my pronunciation that threw you off? Don't even try to blame me. It's your spelling. Post-millennialism says that the influence of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase on the earth 
until a large proportion of the world's population becomes Christians. The church is, will make a significant impact on society with biblical values. And society will more and more reflect Christian values. And a millennial age of peace and righteousness will occur on the earth. The millennium will last a long time, not necessarily a thousand years. And at the end of this wonderful period of peace, Christ will return to earth. And then those who are dead will be raised up. The final judgment will occur. And then the new heaven and new earth will descend. All right. And so post-millennialists believe that Christ returns at the end of the millennium. Post-millennialists, they have a strong faith in the power of the gospel. They believe that the power of the gospel has the power to change society. Amen? Amen. And we believe that, right? The gospel is powerful to change society, and therefore they're very optimistic. They're not optimistic. They're very optimistic about the increase of this influence on the earth before Christ returns. People tend to adhere to post-millennial beliefs when the church is experiencing great revival or when there is an absence of war, just historically. I went over that last week. And this is why the Puritan reformers, they were split on their views of the millennium. During the first great awakening, smart men like Jonathan Edwards championed post-millennialism. During the second great awakening, the second great revival, D.L. Moody was also influenced to support it as well. So let's look at some of the post-millennialists' exegetical support. Number one, the Great Commission. Post-millennialists believe that the Great Commission implies that the gospel is going to have a powerful effect on the entire earth. And that it will result in all nations being discipled. What does the Great Commission say? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. For those who have ever been with Campus Crusade or any kind of missionary organization, you have this memorized. Therefore, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Post-millennialists argue that the Great Commission implies that the gospel power is going to influence the entire world at some point. And that Jesus has promised this, that Jesus' presence is going to be with us through it, that the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. That's powerful. That's powerful. Second, uh, post-millennialists point to parables about the kingdom of God. Most notably, the mustard seed in, Re- in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says, look at the mustard seed. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows up, it becomes the largest of all plants. And so the gospel, the kingdom of Christ starts out small with a band of 120 people that are a little disillusioned over what happened, a little bit scared. And from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this mustard seed, it just takes over the whole world. Postmillennialists are very optimistic that the kingdom will grow to influence and transform the entire world. Not just evangelize, 
but to change society. Third, postmillennialists like to argue that the whole world is becoming more and more Christian. You know, if you ever look at um, Christian church growth charts, you look at certain, uh, certain demographics of religion in the world, there is such a, a strange diversity in statistics. You ever notice that? You talk to some people and like 80% of the world is Christianized. I'm like, oh, wow, praise God. Jesus, you should return very quickly because we're almost almost at 90%. It just looks like the whole world is Christian. Then you you look carefully and and Jehovah Witnesses, what? Why are they being included? I know they're a small population, but still they shouldn't be included in this. Mormonism, what the? Hey, y'all know Mormonism is not Christian. Mormonism is a straight-up cult. I'm not afraid to say it because I help people get out of Mormonism. And there's always all kinds of strange deliverance that we need to do for it. Not strange, but we need to do some powerful deliverance for them. Anyway, they included everybody and their mom. And no wonder the whole world is Christian. And then you look at other statistics, and then like, it's like 5% of the world is Christian. The church is losing its grip. Islam is taking over. They're having too many babies. Christians, hurry up. <laughs> and you're like, man, why is there so? Well, who's right? Who's right? What? Well, I think it all depends on their agenda. It all depends on their agenda. If they want to paint a picture that the gospel is going out and Christianizing the whole world, they're going to throw anybody in there that, that looks like and appears like a Christian. But if they are maybe trying to inspire you to evangelize by telling you that the Muslims are taking over the whole world, I guess then, the, then they just remove anybody that disqualifies as a Christian. You know, and so, I don't know, man. I don't believe the hype. Man. I'm not sure what to believe about all them statistics. All I know is we got to keep being faithful to preach the gospel. Whether people believe it or, or not, it's a matter of faithfulness for us. If Christ sends you to Turkey, like my friend Clay that we support as a missionary. Oh, snap. I shouldn't be saying that on, on my podcast. It's okay. I don't think anybody in Turkey is listening to this. But uh, anyway, I got, I got a friend in, 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 in a Middle East country. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry. All right. If he gets, if he gets persecuted for this, he'll, he'll, he'll be blessed. <laughs> Don't worry, man. He's my boy. He's my boy. I'm pretty sure nobody in Turkey is listening to our message. Anyway, look, check this out. So if God calls you to a place where it's very heavily Muslim, you can preach all your heart out. Not many people are going to receive Christ. Or you go to a place like, like certain parts of Brazil. You just mention the name of Jesus and people start bowing their knee to Christ. Certain parts of Brazil. Or you go to certain parts of Africa. You can gather hundreds of thousands of people for these huge crusades. And Pastor Benjamin went to Ethiopia, you know, and he saw thousands of people being healed, tens of thousands of people receiving Christ during the week, right? But it's a matter of faithfulness. Whether you get called to a place where nobody receives Christ or a place where a lot of people are receiving Christ, the call of God on you is to be faithful to preach the gospel. Anyway, let me, let me stay on track here, all right? 
So in summary, post-millennialists expect a future millennium that will be ushered in by the expansion of the gospel. Christ will return at the end of this millennium. Although post-millennialists, they believe in a millennium, it is important to point out that the millennium that post-millennialists hold to is very different from the millennium that premillennialists hold to. In many ways, they're not even talking about the same thing. Premillennialists believe that Jesus will physically reign as king over the entire earth along with believers in resurrection bodies. Postmillennialists are talking about an earth with lots and lots of Christians influencing society. They're totally two different things. And so you got to understand the difference. So post-millennialists. Now, if you look at certain churches, you can conclude that they're actually post-millennialists. Anyway, uh, let, me, let me just stay on track. All right, view number three. Let's go to view number three, pre-millennialism. The prefix pre means before. Okay. So according to this view, there will be a future millennium. A golden age in which Satan will be bound and Jesus will physically descend and reign on the earth along with believers in resurrection bodies. Jesus will make this return at the beginning of the millennium. This is what premillennialists believe. And when Jesus returns, believers who have died will be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits. And then these believers will reign with Christ on this earth for 1,000 years. So some premillennialists believe that this is a literal 1,000 years. Others understand it just to be a long period of time. But during this time, Jesus will be physically present on the earth. Now you might be like, that sounds weird. But look, he did it 2,000 years ago. Why is it so hard for you to believe that? Right, And so that's just a simplified you know, rhetoric that premillennialists might use. So Jesus will reign on the earth in a physical resurrected body. And he will be the king over the entire earth. Believers who have been raised from the dead will, will receive a body similar to Jesus. Bodies that will never die. And the unbelievers who are on the, on the earth, some or many will turn to Christ and be saved. But not everybody. Because Satan at the end, he's going to be able to gather a huge army of people. At the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit. And he will gather unbelievers who may have submitted outwardly to Christ's reign. But inwardly, they despised his, his kingdom and had a rebellious heart. When Satan is loosed, he will gather all of these unbelievers for one final battle against Christ. Where Christ... I don't know what he's going to do, but the Bible just simply says fire will fall from heaven. You know, Jesus got bombs we don't know about. <laughs> All right. I mean, if I'm Satan and I'm reading this, I'm like, man, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> you know, but, but I don't know, Satan, maybe, maybe he'll be so topped up at being in that bombless pit for a thousand years. He'll come out and he'll be like, man, I don't care. I'm just going to attack you. Anyway, uh, the Bi- Bible says. <laughs> that uh, Satan will gather them for one final battle. Jesus will defeat them. Then Christ will raise all the unbelieving dead throughout all of history. And they will appear before him in one final judgment. 
after he takes care of that and punishes them accordingly, then the new heavens and the new earth will come and believers will enter into the eternal state. Premillennialism tends to gain popularity when the church experiences great suffering or if there is widespread war in the world. But that's not the only reason why people believe in premillennialism. There's also exegetical support. Let's look at some of that. Number one, the fulfillment of several Old Testament passages fit neither in the present age nor in the eternal state. So number one, fulfillment of several Old Testament passages fits neither in the present age nor in the eternal state. Uh, So there's a bunch that different uh, systematic theologians will point out. Let me just go over one of them. Let's go to Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 9. This is a very vivid one. Isaiah chapter 11. Everybody turn there, verses 2 through 9. And uh, the Jehovah Witnesses down the street, they have a different interpretation than us about this. Uh, when they give you their little brochure with pictures of little children playing around with lions. Okay. I don't believe what they've written. But the image is in the Bible. We just have to interpret when that will be. So look at Isaiah verse, chapter 11, verses 2 through 9. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity, decide with justice for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leper shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. Man, I ain't going to let none of my children play over a cobra hole. I don't care what one thing it is. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It's another snake, all right? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I know that there are other passages that you read like this. And you can take bits and pieces of it. But as a whole, you're thinking, what? You're thinking, yeah, 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 this applies to our church age. But then you're like, wait a minute. I ain't seen no children playing with cobras lately. If this is supposed to be the the church, the millennium is the church, and this is what's supposed to happen, I should try testing this out, right? Ain't no knucklehead, ain't no amillennialist ever going to try this out, right? And so there are these types of Old Testament passages. They don't really fit in the church age. And the fulfillment of them don't really fit in the eternal state either. So these types of passages give us evidence that there may be some kind of intermediate state. All right. Where the removal of all sin, death, and rebellion is not yet complete. So you read in this passage, there's all these wonderful things going on, right? Children leading out lions and goats and tigers and bears. But you also have 
Jesus here shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. So there's all this going on, children playing with all the kinds of cobras, but there's all kinds of wicked people still on the earth. So it doesn't really fit, right? So there's these passages. Uh, there's Isaiah 65, 20, Psalm 72, uh, 8 through 14, Zechariah 14, verses 6 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Revelation 2, 27, Revelation 12, 5, Revelation 19, 15. All right, that's all in the podcast for you to you can write it down later. Um, and so that's uh, passages that Wayne Grudem has found. All right, I, th- I think uh, you need to. We need to examine that. We can't just gloss over that. Second, there are also New Testament passages other than Revelation 20 that suggest a future millennium. When Jesus speaks in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27, to the church in Tiatira, he says this: "The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end." To him I will give authority over nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Okay? The imagery here in Revelation chapter 2 is of a rule of force over rebellious people that is executed through the believers. So Jesus says, just as I receive authority from my father, I will give authority to, uh, to you over nations. And, and there will be people, the one who conquers and stays faithful to the end, I'm going to give them authority to rule over cities and nations. And you will rule them with a rod of iron. Rebellious people? Or you, you're going to take care of the rebellious people. You know? And so that's the image we get. So there's New Testament passages that support or imply some kind of future millennial state. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.23. This is a real good one. I'm going to read it in the ESV. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the Greek word here, epeta, which is translated into English as the word then, T-H-E-N. That word then has the sense of after that rather than at the same time. And so if you were to take this in chronological order, it really supports the idea of an interval of time where Jesus must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. All right. Third, the natural reading of Revelation chapter 20 supports the premillennial view. The natural reading of Revelation 20 supports the premillennial view. Uh, let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. I'm having fun up here, man. Y'all, yeah, I, I hope y'all are enjoying this, because this is this is this is awesome, man. I'll try to wrap it up for you in the in the end to make it practical. But man, y'all should pay attention to the whole thing. Now, I'm having about one third of y'all. Y'all just checked out, man. But look, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. We are living. I believe we are living in the last days. Now, I know every Christian in all of history said that, but look, I believe we are living in the last days. 
If you don't prepare yourself, man, you are going to be in for a rude awakening. So third, the natural reading supports the premillennial view. So if you look here, Satan is bound, right? It says Satan is bound in a bottomless pit. The pit is shut. The pit is sealed. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so the binding of Satan here seems to imply a far greater restriction than just being prevented from stopping the advance of the gospel. Which is what Amalelius would say. Also, the statement came to life here is best taken to refer to a bodily resurrection. The Greek word, azesan, which is translated, came to life. This is the same verb and form that's used in Revelation 2.8 to talk about Jesus identifying himself as the one who died and came to life. So what's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about his bodily resurrection. And the idea of reigning with Christ is something, uh, the, the idea of reigning with Christ in the future is an idea that is supported elsewhere in the New Testament. So, um, uh, I can't look at that. I'm out of time. So I'm going to keep going. Wayne Grudem, systematic theologian, he wisely points out that nowhere in Scripture does it say that believers are reigning with Christ in an intermediate state, the, the church age, that believers are reigning with Christ in heaven. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. But in New Testament, it supports the idea that in the future, we shall reign with Christ. There's Luke 19.17, Luke 19.19, 1 Corinthians 6.3, Revelation 2.26-27, Revelation 3.21. So those who came to life and reigned with Christ here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. The Bible, this is a very important part. Look at verse 4. It says that those who come to life and reign include people who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not received the, its mark, uh, the, the, who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. This is a reference... To believers who did not yield to the persecution that was brought on by the beast. Now the beast is this character in Revelation, alright? So when the beast comes, he's going to mess us up. He's going he's gonna to try to really mess people up. And he's going to require the, the mark of the beast to be put on people's heads and, and hands. And so... I don't know any time in history where some government authority required everybody to put something on their forehead and on their hands. Did you come from a government like that? I don't know anything in history that has done that. So it's um, implying something that's still yet to come. So that means the persecution is still future. That means this group of people who refuse to submit to that persecution is also future. And therefore, this coming to life is also future. And so, exegetically, it does not make sense that it's referring to Believers just going into heaven and reigning with Christ from heaven. Okay, so this is the natural reading of this text. All right, so in my personal reading of the Bible and in reading the interpretation of all the respected Christian theologians that are out there, my conclusion is that the classic premillennialism view is the most persuasive. All right, so I don't know if I hit that very well. Okay. 
No? All right. Okay, it's okay. So I'm going to argue for the last view. Now, the last view is called premillennialism, but the very particular version, there's a, uh, there's a new version of premillennialism that has gained immense popularity in America and in the UK. I'm going to talk about that next week. That's called dispensational premillennialism. But what I am arguing for here at the end is called classic or historic premillennialism. Just remember it as classic pre- premillennialism. That's what I'm arguing for. That's what I'm most convinced and persuaded of. And so let me, let me talk to you about some of this. All right? This is the fun part. Here, here we go. All right? This is my real voice coming out. Well, I'm, I'm going to read some of Wayne Grudem's points because he's, he's, he's very clean on this. Uh, some people, millennials argue that we should not base a doctrine, a major doctrine like the millennium, based on just one obscure passage in the Bible. Well, I can counter that, and Wayne Grudem counters that by saying that the Bible only needs to say something once in order for it to be true. And it also makes sense that an end times teaching will be presented in the book of Revelation, a book about future end times events. So it's a very logical thing, very reasonable thing, to take out a major belief in something like the millennium from a book that covers future end times topic, the, the topic of future end times, right? So that's, the, that's, the, that's kind of first rebuttal to some of the, what the millennials say. Um, second, I have a very big problem with the amillennialist interpretation of the binding of Satan. I'm sorry, Augustine. You might be smart. You might have had a lot of influence. I completely agree with you in the doctrine of predestination. But you know what? In regards to this and with your views on marriage, I completely disagree. (laughs) Augustine and other very smart amillennialists have argued that the binding of Satan is simply a hindrance. Satan is simply hindered from preventing the gospel's expansion. What is that? Okay. When I read the Bible and I read history and I read history before Christ and I read history after Christ, guess what? There have been wars. There has been all kinds of genocide, killing, people Killing women and children and, and pregnant women. I mean, there's all kinds of atrocities that happened before Christ and happened after Christ. Is Satan's bound? Who is influencing the world to kill each other like this? Who is forming all these new religions all the time to get people trapped into idolatry, to veil their eyes from the truth of the gospel? Who's doing that? You know, and so. During Augustine's time, you know, Holy Roman Empire, there's a lot of peace. It looks like, wow, the gospel is advancing. And if you're living in the middle of Missouri and you've never been out very much, you're thinking, oh, yeah, the gospel is advancing. Look at my church. It's turned into a mega church. 5,000 people in, over ten, in less than 10 years. Oh, wow, the gospel is advancing. But look, you live in the middle of Afghanistan with a group of 10 people that are just surviving just to believe and not get their... And not get killed by their own fathers for turning away from Islam. It don't look so much like the gospel is taking over the world. And it also doesn't look like that Satan is so firmly bound. And so to the amillennialists, 
I will just present the Holocaust. World War One, World War Two, Korean War. You know how many millions of people died in the Korean War? You know, a lot of Americans, they only look at the American soldiers' deaths. And there's a lot of casualties from the Amer- American casualties. But you know how many Koreans died? You know how many Korean civilians? civilians? And I read this one book, talked about how Korean civilians were just walking down the road. And they were just trying to flee North Korea. And American bombers just came and they just started firing and destroying and dropping bombs at will. And body parts were flying everywhere. Blood was gushing everywhere. And all those civilians, most of them died. You know how many civilians, millions of civilians died? You know how many millions of people died in Russia? During all the different revolutions that they've been through? You know how many people died in China? I mean, there is just so much war, murder. You, you want recent events? I'll give you recent. Look at Rwanda. You know, we, one movie comes out and the world turns its attention to Rwanda for just five minutes. But even during those five minutes, we realize, man, the world is not so rosy, is it? If Satan's bound, man, we need to do, God should do a little better job of binding him up. He needs a few more ropes up there or down there. <laughs> Look, my problem is the amillennialist thing that Satan's bound. I think, man, Satan is not bound, period. We are in a war. He's all out. He's going after God's people. You do healing deliverance ministry, you start to realize, man, Satan doesn't seem so bound. And so you know what we got to do? We got to bind him through our prayers. We got to come against and confront his works and destroy his works, just as Jesus did. The Bible says that this is the reason why the Son of God was made manifest, to destroy the works of Satan. You know what? If I were to continue that, I would say because Christ is in us, the hope of glory, this is the reason why the church was made manifest, to destroy the works of, of Satan. So I got a big problem with the amillennialist view of binding Satan. All right, it's just, it's just, it, it, don't, it don't seem like it happened. Okay, another uh, word, resurrection. Uh, resurrection in the Bible, the Greek anastasis, never refers to going to heaven. It never refers to going into the presence of God. It always, almost, always will refer to the bodily resurrection. So you talk about resurrection here, you cannot reinterpret that to mean it's just believers going to heaven and reigning with Christ in heaven. It's talking about the first resurrection. It's talking about physical body resurrection. Also, some people have difficulty believing in two resurrections. But look, the book of Revelation, the, the rest of the Bible implicitly teaches one resurrection. But the book of Revelation here explicitly teaches two so, you know, it really is a matter of which one are you going to go with? The implicit teaching or the explicit one? And the Bible just says there's, got, there's a first resurrection and that implies a second resurrection. You better believe there's going to be two. All right. All right. Let, let me keep going. Let me come against the post-millennialists a little bit. Post-millennialists have a great commission optimism because they, they say they believe in the power of the gospel. Well, amen to that. I believe in the power of the gospel. You know what? They believe we got to engage society. I believe we got to engage society. You know what? The reformers, they were great at uh, engaging society. And they weren't even post-millennialists. 
a lot of the uh, reformers, the uh, magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin, they were, they were just amillennialists. But they still engage society. So we have a responsibility to confront injustice as the church, as the salt and light on the earth. But this does not necessarily imply that the majority of the world will become Christian. Look, I want to believe that too. Believe me, I ain't against that. I want to believe that the whole world's going to come to Christ. The assumption that God will bring about a worldwide Christianization. I'm sorry. You cannot just base that. It's not contained in the Great Commission itself. Neither is it in any other text in the Bible. There is no text in the Bible that implies or teaches directly a worldwide Christianization. Uh, All warnings in scripture is another argument. About Jesus returning at any time like a thief in the night. If you're a post-millennialist, the post-millennials gradual triumph of the gospel to Christianize the whole world and then Christ will return. It seems to take away the teaching of thief in the night. And we're almost like correcting Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we know you said you might come any time. You know, you told us that parable of the ten virgins. But check this out. We believe that the gospel is going to Christianize the whole world gradually. And we want you to come back at the end. We believe that's what you meant. And I don't know if that's what Jesus meant. Because Jesus said, you better watch out. The servants, they better watch out. They better be found faithful when I return. When the master returns, they're going to find the servants faithful. There is these warnings in scripture about an imminent, sudden, anytime return. Be on guard. If you're a post-millennialist, man, that, you can just disregard that. It doesn't really fit. It opposes those warnings. So look, that is a lot of scripture you got to dismiss in order to really stay with your post-millennial views. You know what Jesus actually taught in the Bible, right? Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Hey, uh, Jesus, um, the gospel is supposed to uh, Christianize the whole world. Why are you so pessimistic? Um, Look, I'm all for optimism. I'm all for faith in the power of the gospel. I'm all for engaging society and transforming and confronting injustice. But look, check this out. Do not let your optimism go ahead of Jesus' prophecies. You know, the post-millennialists, They seem more optimistic than Jesus about the end times. (laughs) Don't you think that's a little bit off? Instead of worldwide evangelization, the Apostle Paul taught us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, that's a long list, reckless, (laughs) 
Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Man, the Apostle Paul, man, when he wrote this, the gospel was going out to the whole known world. I mean, you got cities of hundreds of thousands of people, and there are just thousands, tens of thousands converting in that city within three, four, five years. He saw incredible signs and wonders. He saw the gospel power going out and transforming lives, transforming cities. And yet the Apostle Paul said, look, in the last times, people are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, arrogant, disobedient. You got to watch out. Man, somebody forgot to, to tell Paul about the post-millennial view. Uh, another argument that I personally have is Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read that for you. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you know, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in all the earth. Check this out. You know what Jesus just said? The Jewish, remember last week I talked about the early Jewish views of the end times? How they believed that the Messiah would return on earth just like King David, a geopolitical king will sit on the throne of David and he will reign over the Jewish people. That's what they believed. They believe in the golden age that will come. That is the presupposition out of which the, uh, these disciples are asking Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, they're like, look, Jesus, you just died and then you got resurrected. This is awesome. Are you going to at this time usher in the golden age where we... We throw off the Roman oppressors and we return to that place of victory for the people of God. Like in the days of David, is that going to be restored right now? You got to understand that that's the loaded question that they just gave Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, what kind of knuckleheaded interpretation is that? Where did you get those beliefs? Let me rebuke you right now. Those are all incorrect. It's all about the church. Don't you understand? It's about the church and the gospel. No, he didn't say that. His absence, his silence on this matter is very loud. Because here's the opportunity to totally destroy this view of the golden age. And, and here's what Jesus said. It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, Jesus seems to implicitly say, oh, it's coming. The Father knows about it. It ain't none of your business to try to figure it out, but it's coming. And in the meantime, look, in a few days, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's powerful. Uh, I know I went over time, so it doesn't matter now, right? Let's, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to close with Matthew 24 because this is real good. It's another exegetical support. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to really close with this. Man, can you feel that in Acts chapter 1? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Jesus is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to return. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend nobody. Can you feel that? Can you feel that in the electricity? They're like, are you going to do it, Jesus? Is this going to be the time? Are you going to start the golden age now? Are you going to restore that geopolitical kingdom of Israel? Are you going to do it right now? And and Jesus just simply said, oh, it's coming. Don't worry about that. I'm itching to come back. I'm itching to take my throne. Oh, I'm a rule. I'm a rule and I'm a reign. But in the meantime, man, this message got to go out to the whole world. Man, I don't know, man, if I'm the only one that sees that. But anyway, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, this is the words of Jesus. Let's look at verses 15. I'm going to read a good chunk of this passage. It's very important that you take mental notes here. Check this out. So when you see the abomination, uh, Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the roof housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. For alas, women who are pregnant and for those who are nurf- nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Let's talk about a great tribulation. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Meaning no human being would be able to survive that time. But check this out. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is here in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, Then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus warns us here. If people say here is the Christ, don't believe him. There he is in the wilderness. Don't go out. Jesus says, look, when I return, it's going to be clear to everybody. The whole world will see. 
And if the post-millennialist is right, then it seems the picture is a little bit off. Because the Bible, Jesus says in verse 30, when the Son of Man appears, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. <laughs> They're crying. <laughs> Why are they mourning? If the whole world is Christianized, and most of the world is Christianized, they should be rejoicing. Oh, there's Jesus. There's our Savior. There's the Son of God coming down on the clouds of heaven just like he predicted. Where's the rejoicing? Jesus said they're going to be mourning. Why are they going to be mourning? Because all their wickedness and all their sin and all their darkness, all their sex trafficking, his time is up. Son of man is going to come with great power and glory. And then he's going to send out his trumpet call. He's going to gather his elect. He's going to gather the believers from all the ends. And they're going to reign with Christ. Now, if this is talking also about the eternal state, there's something off about this as well. There's a lot of things here that wouldn't fit with the amillennial view as well. The amillennialists believe all this stuff happens at once and then we go into the eternal state. But here it looks like Jesus coming back. It looks like um, Jesus is like Rambo. He's like Chuck Norris. He's like the Terminator. Like Jesus is returning and look like he's got some business to take care of. This passage does not talk about a Christianized world that is free of great suffering and evil. But this passage talks about a great tribulation that is unprecedented on the earth. And after this great tribulation, it does not say that the majority of the world will welcome Christ. It says they will mourn when they see him. Church uh, theologian Michael Horton, he's a very well-known reformed theologian. Uh, I I, I use his systematic theology book to prepare my text. He himself says, historic premillennialism has much to commend it. He himself is not a premillennialist. He's an amillennialist. But he says exegetically, they do have pretty strong support. That's what he pretty much is saying. You know why when it comes down to it? Premillennialism has really strong exegetical support. If you read this scripture here, no matter how much you love Jesus and you want other people to know about Jesus, once again, your optimism cannot go ahead of the prophecies that came out of Jesus' mouth. Why, Pastor Christian, why are you so pessimistic? Don't you believe in the power of the gospel? Those are not the issues. That's not the issue. Stop talking to me like that. It's not that I deny the power of the gospel. It's not that I'm a pessimist. Look, I'm I'm actually quite optimist. I'm very optimistic. I'm an optimist. But look, man, I got to place my faith in what I believe is what the Word of God is saying. A sound interpretation of what the Word of God is saying. So there's amillennialism, there's postmillennialism, there's premillennialism. And today, I've argued that I believe exegetical support stands most persuasively with historic premillennialism. Now, I ended with this passage on purpose because next week, I'm going to preach on what is called the Great Tribulation. This is an area that the American church 
needs to hear. So if you know the Left Behind series books by Tim LaHaye, uh, it is indicative of how popular dispensational premillennialism has gotten. So next week, I'm going to talk about that new version of premillennialism that came and became popular recently. There's classic, that's what I stand for, classic premillennialism. I'm going to cover dispensational premillennialism and why it is different and why I do not believe and cannot support dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism in any way whatsoever. And it's going to be clear, it's going to be sound. And my dispensational friends may hate me for this, but, but check this out. It's just, I believe it's really plain and clear. So next week, I'm going to talk about that, all right? And so, um, is there going to be a tribulation? Is the church going to be rescued from the tribulation? Are we going to be raptured out of tribulation? Are we going to have to endure the tribulation? Those are the questions. What's the tribulation going to look like? We're going to talk about that next week, all right? So today, I just end with this. I know I said I was going to end a while ago. I'm going to end with this. Look, check this out. Whether you are amillennialist, postmillennialist, or premillennialist, the same belief that the church holds to in any of those views is that Jesus is going to return. He's going to return. And what I think is going to be amazing about the premillennial view is Jesus is going to return. His first coming as a lamb, his second coming as a mighty and great king. A humble king. And we're going to, through the millennium, whether it's a thousand years or it's just a really long time, we're going to, during the millennium, get to see Jesus reigning on the earth. And you know what? If Jesus is reigning on the earth over just believers, how easy is that anyway? You know, Jesus is just high-fiving everybody. Hey, what's up? What's up, Sam Q? Hey, hey, I remember what you did. Way back, you know, during New Philly days, I remember how faithful you were. That's why I put you in charge of the nation of uh, all the Central Asian nations. You know, what if Sam Keel gets authority to rule, governmental authority to rule over all the Central Asian nations? You better be good to him right now. Because <laughs> the faithful are going to be rewarded. And even in the parables Jesus talks about, you've been faithful with little. Now I'm going to put you in charge of cities. There's a parable where Jesus talks about that. Now, we could have cities in the new earth. I understand. We could have cities in the new heaven. But what about cities right here on this earth during the millennium? God's going to vindicate his people. God is going to descend physically once again on the earth. But it will not be as a little baby. It will be like the Terminator. (laughs) He will come and he will come And he will start to rule and reign. And the increase of his government will know no end. And it will come to a time where little babies are going to play with cobras. But at the same time, Jesus is going to execute judgment against the wicked. And the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And there will be a time, I believe, where every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. I believe that's going to happen at the millennium. At the beginning of the millennium. People are going to be mourning. Some of them are going to bow their knee, but they're going to be mourning. There'll be other time, others who are going to bow their knee and they're going to be rejoicing because they have believed faithfully to the end. So these views might sound crazy to you, but once again, they're not new. 
you just they just not been recovered very well. They've not been taught very clearly. I hope that helps. I'm closing prayer. Father, we desire to live our lives on this earth in great faithfulness because we know that you will return. And Jesus, you will be exalted in heaven and on earth as the great king that you are. And Father, this is the hope that we profess. That every faithful act and all of our participation in godliness to reflect the character of Christ that will not be in vain. For when you return, you will reward your faithful ones. Blessed and holy are those who partake in the first resurrection. everyone just stand to your feet just stand to your feet and before we close with the song of praise I just want to invite everybody no matter what millennial view you have just to begin to whisper to the Lord Maranatha it's Greek for come Lord Jesus Lord come descend come appear on the clouds come in your glory come and come quickly Lord come and come quickly God let's begin to whisper Maranatha let's begin to express our hearts longing to see the King of Kings return to see his power and glory being revealed to all the nations of the earth all the nations that despise Christianity all the nations that are opposed against God's anointed one let us long for his return Let us long to see Him glorified and honored and praised above all names on the earth. Let us long for that. Let's express that longing to Him. Jesus. Maranatha. For God is 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father